As we go once more to our God in prayer, let me read before we do this from the book of Amos, chapter 8, words that uh, may be familiar to many uh, are terrifying to all when we hear them. A warning. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. This is the thing for us to pray and to thank God for because we are not experiencing that famine. He is feeding us richly from his word, and we're grateful. So before we invite Pastor Jeremy to come up and bring us God's word, let's pray, let's thank him, and let's ask him to bless our time in it. Father, our desire tonight is that we would be led more and more by your work in us to tremble before your word. And we do thank you for the rich, bountiful provision that is ours in Christ. We thank you for the blessings that you continue to pour out for us day after day. Especially right now, Lord, we thank you for the, the enduring provision of your word. We thank you for the, uh, the accessibility that, it, that we have. We thank you uh, for this evening that we get together once again now and receive food from your word. Father, help us to remember that it is just that. It is our food. It is life to us. We thank you for your servant, and we pray, asking for your blessing upon him as he brings it to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is my great... Well, it is my pleasure to be here with you this evening, and I look forward to our time of worship, and especially as we sit under the preached word this evening together. The sermon text this evening comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. If you would like to open up your Bibles. And then, if you'll notice on your bulletin, you'll see the portion of the Apostles' Creed that we will be covering this evening. And I will read that as well before we begin. But let us go ahead and Go to the Lord once again in prayer, just asking His blessing upon our time in the Word. <clears throat> oh Lord God, we thank You for Christ our Savior and the redemption that was accomplished by Him. His sufferings, oh God, are, are deeper than we know. And thankfully, deeper than we will ever experience. And so we thank you for the sufferings of Christ, but also for his subsequent glories. And we thank you that all of Scripture points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would receive what is proclaimed in faith, and that you would give us the grace to do what it commands. Sanctify us now by your truth, by your word, for your word is truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in your bulletins, you'll see there 
The portion of the Apostles' Creed we're covering tonight, if you want to read along, it says, Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And now, if you will, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be looking at verses 3 and 4. This is God's holy inerrant and infallible word. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Now, what is... A creed. A creed is a statement of belief. The term itself originates in the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And that is precisely how the Latin version of the Apostles' Creed begins. Credo in Deum Patrum. I believe in God the Father. And the Christian religion is a creedal religion because it is a religion based upon belief, upon faith. Now, there are inspired creeds and uninspired creeds. In other words, there are Christian creeds that can be found both in and out of Scripture. The passage that I chose this evening, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 is itself a creed. It's a statement of belief written in a creedal formula. It is therefore an inspired creed. And there are others in Scripture as well, such as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, among several others. And aside from these inspired creeds found in Scripture, Christians from the beginning have also made summary statements of Scripture that they have confessed in creedal statements. Now, many Christians will tell you that they do not hold to any creed outside of Scripture. Some movements in Christianity have adopted the slogan, No Creed but Christ. But that slogan itself is a creed. It is saying, I believe in no creed but Christ. You see, every self-professing Christian in every church has a creed because creeds are simply statements of what one believes. The moment someone begins to interpret Scripture, they are composing a creed. It may not be a public or a corporate creed. Instead, it might be a private or a personal creed, but it is a creed nonetheless. Any person or church who holds to the Trinity, for example, holds to a creed. They may not put it into a creedal formula to recite, but they hold to a creed, since the word Trinity itself is merely a summary of Christian doctrine, the word itself not being contained in Scripture, in the Bible. And so we all hold to inspired creeds, which come from Scripture, and uninspired creeds, which are summaries of what the Scriptures teach. My denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, for example, 
adopts the Westminster Confession of Faith as containing the system of doctrine that is taught in Scripture. Many of uh, the, the churches all represented here have statements of faith or confessions and creeds that they hold to. And the confession of faith is simply a longer creed. Now, we do not believe that they are inspired creeds or confessions. The Westminster Confession or the Second London Baptist Confession are not inspired creeds. Only Scripture is inspired. You see, confessions and creeds are not our rule of faith. Scripture is our only rule of faith and practice because it alone is infallible and inerrant. Nevertheless, those scriptures must be interpreted and taught by the church. Therefore, non-inspired creeds and confessions are helpful summaries of the doctrines contained in Scripture and can therefore be helpful secondary authorities in the church. They are not the final authority. Scripture alone is the final authority for faith and practice. Creeds and confessions are subordinate to Scripture and therefore subject to correction by Scripture. Their use in the church then are only beneficial in the well-being of the church as it holds her accountable to what final authority Scripture itself teaches. Now, as you know, we have been working through a series on the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed that most churches confess. Tonight we are continuing to look at the second paragraph, which addresses the redemption accomplished by Christ. Now, last time, Pastor Russ Baker addressed the incarnation portion of the second paragraph in the Creed, which certainly was necessary for our redemption. The incarnation was necessary for our redemption. But tonight, we get to the heart of the gospel, which can be summarized as Christ's sufferings and subsequent glories. In order to expound upon this part of the Apostles' Creed, we are using 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 as our base text, though we will look at other portions of Scripture along the way as well. Let me read, once again, the portion that we are covering this evening. Regarding Jesus Christ, it says, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And looking now then to our passage of Scripture, Paul reminds the Corinthians of that which he originally delivered to them as of first importance, and which he himself received. Now back in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, he calls that which is of first importance the gospel which he preached to them. And that's extremely important because it tells us that the gospel ought to be of first importance in our preaching, in what we proclaim. And Paul also wants to stress that the gospel was not something he invented, but was delivered to him. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, Paul tells us that he did not receive the gospel from any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so what is the gospel which he received from Jesus Christ? Well, he summarizes it in verses 3 and 4. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now that, Paul tells us, is what is of first importance with respect to the gospel. And he breaks that down, that gospel down, into three parts, three propositions. First, that Christ died for our sins. Two, that he was buried. And three, that he was raised on the third day. And so let's take a closer look at those three propositions. First, he says that Christ died for our sins. Now, there's a lot that goes into that statement. It clearly asserts that the man, Christ, died. Christ, of course, was not a mere man. He was the God-man, fully God and fully man. The eternal Son of God took to Himself a human nature and became incarnate, as Pastor Baker preached in our last meeting together. And the person, Jesus Christ, died with respect to His human nature. What we ascribe to the nature, we can also ascribe to the person. Thus, we proclaim that the God-man, Jesus Christ, died with respect to His human nature. But Paul, in this first proposition, doesn't merely say that Christ died, but that He died for our sins. As you well know, Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And when he did so, all mankind fell into an estate of sin and misery. And all were exiled from that garden. God even stationed cherubim with flaming sword to guard the entrance into the garden so that no sinful man could enter into the garden and ascend the mountain of God into heaven. Nevertheless, God promised a Redeemer who would come and crush the head of the devil so that His elect could ascend into heaven. In crushing the devil's head, his own heel would be bruised. In other words, in order to defeat Satan, sin, and death itself, the Redeemer would also suffer. He would defeat death by undergoing death. And this he did for the forgiveness of our sins. The wages of sin is death, and our Savior died for the sake of our sins. Now this could not be done by any ordinary man, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It could only be accomplished by the sinless Savior the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. And this is why the creed says that He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pilate, being a Roman prefect or governor, had the authority to find men in Judea guilty of crimes and to sentence them to death. And this was necessary to fulfill Scripture, which says He was numbered with the transgressors. 
Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 12. Despite the fact that Pilate found no fault in him, which is significant because he was, after all, sinless, nevertheless, at the request of the Jews, he ordered Jesus to be scourged and sentenced to death among criminals by crucifixion. Now, to be crucified, to be hanged on a tree to death was, according to Deuteronomy 21-23, a sign that God's curse was upon that person. Paul, quoting that verse, says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 And so we see why 1 Corinthians 15.3 states that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The good news is not just that He died, but that He died for our sins. He bore the curse, the wrath of God that was against us for our sins, so that by grace we might be forgiven. And so also, we see why the Apostles' Creed, summarizing Scripture, says, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead. In short, we could say that His suffering under Pontius Pilate signifies that he was numbered with the transgressors. That he was crucified signifies that he was cursed by God. For cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And as the sinless Savior, he bore that curse on account of our sin. And that he died signifies that his death was in the place of ours, his death for our life. Beloved, because the wages of sin is death, death held us captive under its power. Therefore, Christ gave himself over to death's power to deliver us from it. He defeated death in his death so that we might have life. John Calvin writes, He let himself be subjected to death, not to be overwhelmed by its power, but rather to lay it low, when it was threatening us and exulting over our fallen state. Finally, his purpose was that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Hebrews 2, 14-15. End quote. Now both our passage this evening and the Apostles' Creed mention that he was buried as well. Was it not enough to mention simply that he died? Why does it also point out that he was buried? Well, this too was a fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, for they prophesied that the suffering servant's grave would be made among the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Isaiah 53, 9. And this was indeed fulfilled, for Christ was buried near to the cross of Calvary. Thus his grave was made with the wicked and 
It was in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. But there's also theological significance to his burial. Being hanged on a tree, as we have mentioned, signified the curse of God. And to remain hanging on that tree would have meant that the curse remained upon Christ. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be buried to indicate that the curse upon him, the curse bore to him for our sins, that that curse had been removed, that it no longer remained. And in this way, we see that our sins were buried with him. They were removed and completely abolished from God's sight so that we might be justified. That is, that we might be declared not guilty in the sight of God. But his burial was not only significant for our justification, but also for our sanctification as well. Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says that we were therefore buried with him in baptism into death. And this indicates the mortification of our old self so that we might now walk in newness of life. We are able to now walk in holiness knowing that our old self, that person who was enslaved to sin, has now been buried with Christ. Our sins buried alongside it. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now the next portion of the creed is the most disputed portion. It's probably what many of you have been anxious for me to address this evening, that being his descent into hell, Christ descended into hell. Now, its meaning has been differently interpreted by different traditions, and it also appears to be a later addition to the creed, though the creed's formulation was really fluid over several centuries. But on account of these facts, some have desired to remove it from the creed altogether. I personally think it would be a shame to remove his descent into hell from the creed. And I stand in good company with that opinion, for the Reformed have, for the most part, all felt that it was a necessary statement in the creed. Perhaps Calvin said it best when he stated, But we ought not to omit his descent into hell, a matter of no small moment in bringing about redemption. And then he goes on to say, If any persons have scruples about admitting this article into the creed, it will soon be made plain how important it is to the sum of our redemption. If it is left out, much of the benefit of Christ's death will be lost. End quote. And what Calvin says here is most true. But it is true, of of course, only insofar as the article is understood properly. That is, we must ascribe to it the proper meaning, the biblical meaning. Now, it's true that the exact phrase itself is never found anywhere in Scripture. But that does not mean that the concept 
or more specifically, that the doctrine itself is not found in Scripture. Assuming, again, that we ascribe to it the proper biblical meaning. And so what is that biblical meaning? Well, in order to rightly divide the truth of this matter, it's important to address the word hell itself. In Latin, as we find it in the creed, it is the word infernos. But in Scripture, it is the word Hades in Greek and Sheol in Hebrew. Now, Sheol or Hades, depending on the context, can have different meanings in Scripture. Sometimes in Scripture, it refers to being in the state of death. And in this context, it does not have in mind a spatial locality. In other contexts, it does have a spatial locality in view, which can refer to one of two places. Sometimes its context is the grave. Sometimes the grave is the location that it has in view. But in others, the location is the place of punishment reserved for the wicked. Now, it is no surprise that many have suggested that after Christ died, He went in His Spirit to the place of punishment reserved for the wicked. That view, which comes in many varieties, is falsely derived from misinterpretations of a few passages of Scripture. And we don't have time to look at all of them, but we might focus on just a couple. For instance, in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, we find a prophecy concerning the Messiah which reads, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now you can see how this might appear to be describing the soul of Christ descending to hell, the place of torment. And especially when taken alongside of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, which says, Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Again, it would appear that having died, Christ's spirit was made alive and went to those spirits in prison. In other words, his soul went to Sheol, the place of punishment for the wicked. That might be, on a first read, the appearance of it. Such an interpretation in both cases would really go beyond what Scripture itself is intending to communicate. And we can demonstrate this beginning with Psalm 16.10. We should first recognize that the Hebrew word translated soul in Psalm 16.10 can simply mean me, my person, me. So you will not abandon me to Sheol. Secondly, we should consider that the Apostle Peter gave us an inspired interpretation of this psalm on the day of Pentecost. And having quoted this psalm, he explains its meaning. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David was the author of Psalm 16. 
And then Peter goes on to say in verse 31, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about, what? The resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, Peter is clearly asserting that the words of David in Psalm 1610 were referring to Sheol, not as the place of torment, but as the grave. How do we know? Well, because what fulfills Psalm 1610 is Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave. Peter says David's tomb is present with us to this day. In other words, his body still lies in that grave. But Christ did not remain in Sheol or in Hades, in the grave. He did not see corruption, for God raised him from the dead. His body is no longer in that grave. As for 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, there are many problems with interpreting it as Christ's spirit going to the place of torment for the wicked. For one thing, in that passage, it is not a body and spirit contrast. As if Christ died and His body went to the grave, but His spirit was made alive again to go to the place of torment. First of all, His spirit never died to be made alive again. And so it's not a contrast between Christ's body and spirit. Rather, it is a contrast between dying in a fleshly estate, but being raised by the Holy Spirit. Paul does the same construction in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when he states, Descending from David according to the flesh, there's the same word, the flesh, the sarks, the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. You see there, He came in the flesh, He died in that estate, but here Paul is saying that He was declared the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. And therefore, His being made alive in the Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 3, refers to the Holy Spirit raising Him from the dead, raising His body from the grave, not to His own Spirit being made alive to go down to the place of torment. That leaves us the responsibility of talking about what does 1 Peter 3 mean then when it says that He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, in short, it means that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, was preaching through Noah in the days of the flood to those who are now in prison because they did not obey in response to Noah's preaching. Christ was preaching through Noah by His Spirit to those who are now in prison. And beyond this, beloved... Other portions of Scripture affirm that when Christ died, His body went to the grave, but His own spirit went immediately to be with the Father in heaven. On the cross, for example, His last words were, Father, into Your hands 
I commit my spirit. Now, interestingly, Stephen says similar words directly to Christ in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 59 says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We are to assume in both cases that their spirits went immediately to be with the ones to whom they were crying. And therefore, the spirit of Jesus could not have gone down into the place of torment known as Hades or Sheol. Furthermore, Jesus tells us the thief on the cross, or tells the thief on the cross, that he would be with him that day in paradise. Okay, then. What does the creed mean, then, when it says he descended? into hell. Well, there is really a twofold answer to that question, which is explained well, I believe, by both the Westminster Larger Catechism and by the Heidelberg Catechism. The Larger Catechism, question and answer 50, explains, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead, and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. And so according to Westminster, his descent into hell reckons Sheol as including both his body going to the grave and in being under the state of death for a time. Now, Heidelberg Catechism, question 44, asks this. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? And the answer provided is, to assure me, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish, and torment. Now, prior to my preparation for this sermon, I actually preferred the Heidelberg to the larger catechism on this particular issue. And the reason why is because beforehand I saw it as an either or. It must be one or the other. But in my study, as it appears to me now, the two are to be taken together in represent, therefore, two sides of the same coin. In other words, both are true and should be taken together. And this is how both Herman Vitzius and John Calvin, among many others, take the statement. For example, Vitzius writes, When we profess that Christ descended into hell, the expression is to be referred, we apprehend, partly to the body and partly to the soul. End quote. Perhaps Calvin puts it best in his own catechism of the Church of Geneva when he says, It is immediately added, He descended into hell. What does this mean? That He not only endured common death, which is the separation of the soul from the body, but also the pains of death, as Peter calls them, Acts 2.24. By this expression, I understand the fearful agonies by which His soul 
was pierced. End quote. Now, beloved, this teaching is so important because Christ must suffer for us in the equivalent way in which we ourselves would have suffered apart from the redemption of Christ. We, of course, should have died bodily. We would have died bodily and gone down to Sheol, that is, to the grave. But we also would have experienced the hellish wrath of God eternally as well. The latter, Christ experienced prior to His death, while on the cross, and even earlier, as Heidelberg points out. That is, He experienced hellish anguish as He neared the cross, and then the hellish wrath of God itself once on the cross. In other words, not only did he experience what the book of Revelation calls the first death, but he also experienced the pains of the second death, which is eternal death. This was expressed most clearly in his words of dereliction on the cross when he cried out saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it is important to understand that this did not mean that the divine, eternal Son was abandoned by the Father. This could never be. For the bond among the three persons of the Trinity can never be broken. As the eternal Son, He was always the object of the Father's good pleasure. By His eternal death, we mean that the human consciousness of Christ experienced the consequences of being forsaken. In other words, his human consciousness lacked the awareness of divine love and felt in its place the fullness of the divine wrath against our sins, which he willingly took upon himself. So, beloved, I hope you can see why this article is so very necessary in the creed that we confess. As Calvin said, if it is left out, much of the benefits of Christ's death will be lost. You see, without this phrase, the creed would fall short of expressing what Christ underwent for our salvation. Bodily death was not enough to save us. As Calvin goes on to say, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. No, it was expedient at the same time for him to undergo the severity of God's vengeance, to appease his wrath and satisfy his just judgment. For this reason, he must also grapple hand to hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. End quote. You see, beloved, this article in the Creed is most important for if it is omitted, then the aspects of Christ's sufferings which we cannot see would not be professed. The suffering under Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion, death, and burial could all be seen. But his experiencing the wrath of God was hidden from our eyes. Yet what a benefit it is to our redemption. And that is why it is so important to this creed. 
Now, it's also important to point out the necessity of Christ being a divine person. For no creature could have endured the death that He endured and overcome it. How could a non-eternal person endure an eternal death and not be overcome by it? Christ was the God-man, and as such, He pursued death and overcame it. He passed through the flaming sword held by the cherubim who guarded the entrance into paradise. That sword represents the judgment sword of God. No mere man could pass through that sword of judgment and live. But Christ, the God-man, did. And that is why He could tell the thief on the cross that He would be with Him that day in paradise. For passing through the judgment sword of God, He died. But the pains of death could not hold Him. And He opened the way into paradise to be with God. You see, His divine nature remained united to His human nature, which allowed Him to overcome death and hell. That is, He endured the wrath of God on our behalf and was raised to newness of life. And that is why both the creed and Paul's summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, includes the resurrection of Christ on the final day, or on the third day. Like Jonah, buried in the belly of the well for three days and then spit out, so Christ's body was buried in the belly of the earth. And on the third day, He rose from the grave. Paul mentions... This in 1 Corinthians 15, that is, he mentions the resurrection because he wants the saints at Corinth to understand that if Christ rose bodily, so too will they who have faith in Christ receive a bodily resurrection when Christ returns. Just as Christ's soul, which had been received by the Father into heaven, was reunited with His body, which had been in the grave, so too would The believers in Corinth have their bodies reunited with their souls at the resurrection on the last day. And so too it is for all of us, beloved, who trust in Christ. My friends, this gospel, this good news has so many profound implications for us. More than I can exclaim this evening. But as we conclude, let me read the words of Vitzius on Christ's descent into hell and make some final remarks. He writes, Let us now inquire what advantage the consideration of these agonies can afford us. Nowhere are the malignant sin and the severity of God's wrath against it more clearly discerned than in our Lord's descent into hell. Go, sinner, to Mount Olivet. Behold Christ rolling in the dust. See that brave and magnanimous prince stretched out on the ground, that generous lion of the tribe of Judah prostrate on the earth. Hear him who is the only consolation of wounded spirits And even the God of our exceeding joy complaining bitterly of sorrow surrounding Him on every side. See the drops of blood with which 
owing to the incredible anguish of his soul, his sacred body is is stained. Hear the supplications offered up with strong crying and tears to his now inexorable father. Ask the Savior, what was the real cause of anguish so immense? When hitherto no hostile bands, no chains, no scourge, no accusers, no judge, no cross were present. When on the contrary, he was in a pleasant garden and at no great distance from his faithful disciples. And you will learn that those very sins which you have hitherto regarded so lightly were the causes of his unparalleled sorrows. Those very sins now laid on Christ afflicted and weighed him down and failed only to overwhelm him utterly. End quote. What can we learn from Christ's sufferings, his descent into hell, and his subsequent glories. We can learn how it changes us. For it causes the believer to hate his sins. The sin which caused our Savior's suffering and descent into hell. It changes us, for we learn To love our Savior, we learn a new love. A love for our Savior who first loved us and demonstrated His love by pursuing death and hell so that we might have life in Him. It changes us. For though we experience trials and sufferings in this life, yet we become a thankful people. Thankful for the resurrection life of Christ which now dwells in us. And even when death comes for us, we are thankful. For we know that our spirits will immediately be received by Christ. On the final day, He will reunite them with our self-same bodies, which will at that time be glorified bodies. For this mortal body will put on immortality. And we shall all be changed and dwell with the Lord forever. To Him be all praise and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we do confess to You the full gospel of Jesus Christ, and we confess that it was necessary because we have transgressed Your holy law and need Your salvation. Humble us, O God that we might always remember the reason for Christ's coming, that it was our sins that were laid upon Him. And may it cause within us, O God, by the power of Your Spirit, to live our lives before You, to live before the cross, just as we sang earlier this evening. Lord, we pray that You will continue to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ, that we might be changed from one glory to another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.